Welcome to the sermon podcast of Gamble Street Baptist Church, Fort Worth, Texas. Gamble Street Baptist Church has been sharing the gospel for over 100 years. This podcast includes sermons from our traditional Sunday morning service and our contemporary services on Sunday evenings. We hope God speaks to you through this sermon. We live in a different world today than when I grew up. I had a birthday this past week. Most of you know that I turned 72. So obviously, yes, we live in a different world today after seven decades. Times change. They always do. But the changes are alarming. It's sort of like the frog in the kettle syndrome. You wake up one day and you look around and you ask yourself, how did things get like this? We live in changed times. I shared a few months ago these facts that those with no religious preference in our nation in 2000 constituted only 8% of the population, and that's risen now to almost 30% over the last 20 years. It's especially rampant amongst young millennials and the first of the Gen Zs, 36%. Worship attendance has dropped from 2,000, 68% of our nation said they worshiped at some kind of facility, a synagogue or a temple or a uh, church. And that number has dropped to under 50% now, the first time in American history. Some of this has to do with the decline in family values. And when you look at the trends that are associated with that, they're alarming. Divorce rate in 1959 was 2.1 per 1,000, 2.1. Over the next 50 years, the average divorce rate in this nation stayed steady at about uh, over double that, 4.4%. It's dropping, and that's encouraging. It's down to 2.7. But America still is number 10 in all the world in divorce rate. Sexually transmitted diseases, Alarming statistics in 2022, they tell us that 20% of our population is walking around with some kind of STD. 20 million new STD cases annually, and over a million and a half people live with AIDS. Abortion. In 2020, the last year for which their total statistics, almost a million abortions, 930,000, 20% of pregnancies in this nation ended in abortion that year, and the total since Roe v. Wade in 1973, 64 million. Unwed pregnancies. In 1980, 18% of U.S. births were to unmarried women. This is really alarming. In 2020, that had more than doubled to 40%. How in the world did we get here? You know, you go back to the 1950s, the decade of my birth, and it's caricatured and it's mocked and derided. The age of Ozzie and Harriet, father knows best and leave it to Beaver. A time of family values is ridiculed today. 
But it was a time of prosperity and optimism after the war and expansion. America was the new superpower. And there was an outbreak of revival in this nation and churches were growing. Today there is a reaction against all of that and we know it. A rejection of those values as prudish and oppressive. Now the new generations that come after us, not all of them, but the new generations coming after us seem to have lost their moorings and their moral direction. Now that, that is described in how we speak about the generation after the boomers. You know, we have, we have words for builders and then boomers, and then what's the next generation? Generation what? X. And we start giving letters to them. Generation Z. You know, Generation X is the 13th generation of our nation, which means that right now in our nurseries, we have generation number 16. There is hope, I think, from this perspective. You know, several years ago, Neil Howe and Bill Strauss produced a book called The 13th Generation. It was about Gen X and forecasting what it was going to be like. The negatives that they described of that generation, which, by, by the way, are our leading politicians and generals in the Army and the Armed Forces. The negatives are that they followed a previous generation that was were moralists. Well, that makes sense. The moralist generation of the 50s. And the generation before them, that is my generation, look at them and they say, this generation seems to have lost its way. There have been many times where we have had generation X's in our past, at least four times. They live in a time of spiritual upheaval and confusion of values. This has happened repeatedly in our nation's history. Those generations typically begin starting out by focusing on individual fulfillment, self-focused attitudes, and a desire for pleasure. They're rebellious, disillusioned, and cynical about the future. Does that sound familiar? And yet, something happens about the time they turn 40. There's a change in their lives. There has been. And later in their lives, they turn around. And they excel in practical realism. They have, four times in the past, led this nation out of intense crisis, and they become quite generous to the succeeding generations and protective of their children. You look at this happening four times in our history. The last time was the 1920s flapper generation that was born between 1883 and 1900. They followed the gay 90s a time of economic prosperity, social gospel reforms, a rising conservatism, even fundamentalism in religious life, and it produced leaders like Harry Truman and George Patton. It happened before that, the Gilded Generation, born 1822 to 1842. This followed a time of moral awakening, the Second Great Awakening, and it produced leaders such as Ulysses S. Grant, writers, Mark Twain, and entrepreneurs like John D. Rockefeller. You go back a generation before that, in the early 18th century, the Liberty Generation followed the first Great Awakening, and they seemed to be hopeless. But they turned around and produced the George Washingtons and Patrick Henrys of our nation. And you go back even a fourth time to the Cavalier Generation, the first generation of this nation 
following the Puritan Reformation, and it produced leaders like William Penn and in England, John Bunyan. You see, there's hope, I think, as we look at the coming generations, that there might just be a turnaround. But there's a difference. The decline that we are seeing now is more profound, and it's based on deep, deep non-cyclical roots. There seems to have been an intent and a continued devotion to unraveling four things that the Bible puts together. The unraveling of the connection between love and sex and marriage and reproduction or procreation. It seems like over the past generation or so that many leaders have been intent on unraveling that relationship. Let me say it again, love and sex and marriage and reproduction. It began really in the late 19th century, a change in views about psychology and psychoanalysis. And then a new movement emerged in the early 20th century. They were the sexologists like Havelock Ellis in Britain and Magnus Hirschfeld in Germany. They promoted extremely permissive views on sex and said that anyone should be able to do what they felt was naturally right with complete sexual freedom. Psychological roots in this nation by psychologists and psychoanalysts. The Marxist psychoanalyst Wilhelm Reich advocating sexual revolution in the 1920s in Germany. It also has philosophic underpinnings, and I'm going to go back to something that I've said at least a dozen times. Of course, the rise of postmodern deconstructionism, which is against all forms of what are perceived to be oppressive movements in our society, including restrictions on sex. The rise of secular humanism. Humanism itself is not bad, I believe. It's the value of the individual that we recognize in individual rights. But secular humanism is the exaggerated result of the Enlightenment, which has developed into today a cult of individualism, which in the 1930s produced the Humanist Manifesto. It was a secular and continues to be a secular religious movement intent on replacing the religions of supernatural revelation. Other philosophic roots, such as Herbert Marcuse in the United States in the mid-50s, gave a philosophic foundation for the sexual revolution in his book, Eros and Civilization. Let's go back to the 50s for just a moment to see how we got here. In the late 40s, Alfred Kinsey, who founded the Kinsey Institute for Sex Research in Indiana University, popularized his views on sex in two works in 1948, Sexual Behavior in the Human Male, and then in 1953, Sexual Behavior in the Human Female. And he said this, basically, from what he purported to be valid scientific statistics, which were not actually <laughs> accurate. If the majority is doing it, we should not punish a behavior unless it differs substantially and materially from that norm. In other words, if the majority is doing it, it's okay. Sex is a matter of personal choice and pleasure designed for individual gratification. There are no clear boundaries in sex between right and wrong. Human sexuality is like a rainbow of blended colors. 
Human nature, you see, is essentially, he said, bisexual with equal capacity for relating to the same sex or the opposite sex. His aim was clear, to abolish rigid controls on human sexual behavior. And the result was to open the door in the 1950s to the attitude that we describe as everyone's doing it, and if everyone's doing it, what I'm doing isn't so bad. This was followed, of course, by the Playboy Foundation and Hugh Hefner. Strongly influenced by Kinsey, he published his first edition of the Playboy magazine in December of 1953 and began the mainstreaming of pornography in this nation. He contributed heavily to the Kinsey Institute and gave financial support for the, for the Roe v. Wade decision. He said U.S. laws governing sexual conduct were repressive and hypocritical. He blamed Christianity for oppressive attitudes that deny people the gratification of their physical needs. So much for the 50s. We move into the 60s when I was an adolescent. The pill, and the pill is not all bad, but the pill changed the way we look at sex in this nation. It was approved by the FDA in May of 1960, and it basically delinked sexual activity from reproduction. And it pushed, it had been pushed for decades by the feminist movement for the purpose of liberating modern women. It changed our attitudes about responsibility that accompanies sex. And then contraception, Supreme Court cases in 1965 and 72 overturned laws against married couples using medical or drug, med medical devices or drugs for contraception and then expanded this to the point in the 70s saying that everyone should have equal access to contraception. In the late 60s, no-fault divorce, first passed in California, then spreading to all of the states, made divorce easier and quicker, and you had to give no proof that one party or the other was wrong. And then, of course, we come to the end of the 60s, and Woodstock, the anti-establishment protests, and free what? Free what? Free love. Timothy Leary, the Harvard psychologist and advocate of psychedelic drugs, summarized the 60s this way with his neo-pagan assessment. Listen to what he said. Everything we did in the 60s was designed to divide, to weaken faith in the conformity to the 1950s social order. Our precise surgical target, target was the Judeo-Christian power monolith, which had imposed a guilty, inhibited, grim, anti-body, anti-life repression on Western civilization. Our assignment was to topple this prudish, judgmental civilization, and it worked. For the first time in 20 centuries, the good old basic paganism got everybody moving again. The ancient Celtic pagan spirit began to sweep through the land of Eisenhower and J. Edgar Hoover. Membership in organized churches began to plummet. Hedonism, always the movement of individuals managing their own rewards and pleasures, ran rampant. Millions of Americans writing their own declaration of independence. My life, my liberty, my pursuit of happiness. A neo-paganism. Did he really understand what paganism had been all about? with its chauvinism, with its slavery, with its abandonment of infant baby girls so that they would die in the wild? Did he really understand what he was talking about? 
Then there was the right to privacy movement in the 1970s. Of course, Roe v. Wade in January of 73 gave almost unlimited access to abortion. The second version of the human manifesto, Humanist Manifesto in 73 strongly supported abortion, divorce, and birth control. And it separated the law from normative moral standards. Norman Geisler puts it this way, official government neutrality in practice became an ideology of non-orthodoxy. And churches that advocate absolute moral standard are considered dangerous. Lately, that has been called what? Hate speech. You see, religion should not be considered to have any role in maintaining personal liberty. We have personal liberty in this nation, friends, largely because of the influence of religion amongst our founding fathers. And then there was the New Age movement, finally, in the 1980s, with the rise of pantheism and naturalism and transcendental meditation and all that went along with that, with the emphasis on intuition and feeling, and in theology, the rise of the reader-response hermeneutic. What I feel about the Scripture is right, and it uncut, un undercut the infallibility of Scripture. Now, I know that that's a fairly long introduction, but folks, I think that helps us understand how the frog and the kettle got boiled. The consequences are this. Casual sex today, it is not procreation, it's not recreation, it is now recreation. Casual sex in the 2020 Pew poll says this, between consenting adults not in relationship, that is casual sex, should it be acceptable? 84% of those that are not aligned with a religious preference say it's okay. What's alarming is half of Christians say it's okay. 75% who don't attend church regularly, 62% Catholics, 54% mainstream Protestants say casual sex is fine. Even evangelicals, 36%. Sex partners in a lifetime, how many sex partners to people have today. 2022 ABC poll says of women, they average six in a lifetime and men average 20. Premarital sex, is it okay? The same poll said this. In 1969, 21% in this nation said premarital sex was all right. Today, 61% say it's okay and in the younger generations, three-fourths of them. What's the primary purpose of sex? Is it self-expression and fulfillment and gratification? Is that the primary purpose? 26% of Christians today say that is accurate, and 41% of the millennials. Is it to unite in marriage? The older two generations, the one before mine and mine, 56% say the purpose should be for marriage. When you look at the younger generation, 33% only say it should be for marriage. So where does this leave us? What is a biblical position? I believe that there is a strong connection that has been dismembered over the past 50 years that the, Bib the Bible says should be connected intimately, and it is love and sex and marriage and procreation. It begins with Genesis 1, 27 and 28. 
God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. You see, God created why? Because he created, because he wanted to. But I believe he did it because he loves his creation and he loves us. You see, it begins with love. He wanted us to have fellowship with him. So there we see is the love and relationship. We're created in the image of God to love God with all of our heart, with all of our mind, with all of our soul, with all of our strength so that we can have relationship with him. Love and relationship. We're created male and female to love and to be in relationship with another human being. So it begins with love. And this love and relationship connects with procreation. God created humanity, and when he did, he gave it a threefold blessing. He said, be fruitful, multiply, that is, increase and become great, and then fill the earth. Fill the earth means to accomplish what I want you to do. Another use of that Hebrew word is to consecrate. He gave them a threefold blessing, be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth, and that was through procreation. It was a threefold command, but it was also accompanied by his promise to bless their productivity. So we have the love and the relationship, and it's connected to procreation. And then we have those two that are connected with marriage and sex. When you look at chapter 2 in Genesis, which we looked at a couple of weeks ago, of course, we have the beginning of marriage when God then said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make him a helper that is suitable to him. And he gave him woman. He gave him Eve as a companion to cure his loneliness, a suitable helper, which means to succor, to help, to surround, if you will. And for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother at the end of chapter 2 and be joined to his wife. And we have then the formation of the family. And whenever we have a marriage, that's exactly what a man and a woman do. They go and they establish a home together in marriage. So it connects love and procreation with marriage and then sex. Yes, sex is good. The sexual binding that is found then at the end of chapter 2 in Genesis, it says, and they became what? One flesh. You see, this is the binary complementarity of two different sexes, male and female coming together in a perfect way to complete each other. You see, marriage fulfills the purposes of that loving relationship. It binds together that loving relationship with marriage and sex. You know, I think there are three purposes for marriage in the Bible. One is procreation, reproduction. What this does is God invites us that are married to participate with him in creation, to recreate, to procreate, to reproduce. And in having sex within marriage, through faithful sexual relations, we honor God to accomplish his mission. And he blesses us. As we read this morning from our responsive reading, children are a heritage from the Lord. The fruit of the womb are a reward. So procreation. Secondly, a second purpose of marriage is obvious from Scripture, companionship. 
to help one another. He gave Adam a suitable helper. When I conduct a marriage ceremony, sometimes I use this phrase. Marriage is a companionship which involves mutual commitment and responsibility. You will share alike in the responsibilities and the joys of life. When companions share a sorrow, their sorrow is halved. And when they share a joy, their joy is double. There is this helping one another, you see. There's also a serving one another in this companionship. In the Anglican Book of Common Prayer, there is a rather quaint phrase which is not always used today. It's been taken out of the current Book of Common Prayer, but in most ceremonies, they still use it. The man says to his bride, the husband says to his wife, with this ring I thee wed, with my body I thee worship, and with all my worldly goods I thee endow. What does it mean, this bodily worship? I, mean, I think it means that he has committed himself to serve her totally, to legitimize the children that are produced by that union, and to give himself sexually and exclusively to her. So companionship is clearly a second objective of biblical marriage. It is procreation and companionship, and yes, pleasure. Adam, when he sees Eve, and they are both naked, he looks at her and he says, this, this is, not the other animals, this is, and he looks at her, I think, with joy, now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh, and they were both naked, and they were what? Unashamed. We are those that are married to enjoy one another with passion and with pleasure. Proverbs 5 says, rejoice in the wife of your youth. Be intoxicated with her love. Paul says in 1 Corinthians that we're to give to one another our, their conjugal rights. Husbands, do not deprive your wives. Wives, do not deprive your husbands. Except for a season of prayer, why? So that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. It is a powerful, potent thing, sex. And it must be kept under control. In 1 Corinthians, the seventh chapter, he says, in order to avoid temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman should have her own husband because it is better to marry than to what? Burn with passion. You see, this idea of passion is acknowledged by Scripture, and it is legitimate within marriage for pleasure. So biblical marriage is about procreation, reproducing, and honoring God. It is about companionship, and it is about pleasure. And God continued to bless marriage even after the fall. You know, the fall pronounces curses, the curse on, on the serpent, that is Satan, the curse on Eve, and the curse on Adam and, and the earth. But what that did, it, it pronounced the consequences of sin. It did not withdraw God's blessing upon humanity. Never did. You see, God continues to bless with productivity, and he expects it. And he continued after the fall to do so with longevity. When you look at Genesis, the fifth chapter, Seth and his eight generations to Noah averaged 858 years of life. And that's taking into account that Enoch was transported at age 365. He blessed. He continued to do so even after the fall. After the flood, with a restart, with a reboot, he tells Noah three times in Genesis 8 
and then in Genesis 9, three times he repeats the triple command and the triple blessing. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And God continued to bless through procreation his covenant people. It was a key part of his plan of redemption. Procreation is a good part of God's redemptive plan. Sarah, at the age of 90, who would have ever expected her to bear a child? And then came Isaac. Rachel, who waited and waited and thought she would never have a child, finally God opened her womb and she gave birth to Joseph and then to Benjamin, and then she died. Israel, in Egypt, God blessed them through procreation, the beginning of Exodus. But the sons of Israel were fruitful. There it is. They increased greatly and multiplied. There it is. And they became exceedingly mighty so that the land was filled. There it is with them. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Hannah prayed and prayed and prayed to God, and he honored her with the birth of Samuel. Elizabeth, in her old age, gave birth to John the Baptist. You see, procreation has been a central part of God's redemptive plan from the Garden of Eden to this day. And in the New Covenant, marriage is blessed to do those things that we described earlier, and that is to have a relationship with God, to pro procreate, and of course, then to have companionship and pleasure. Jesus confirmed this, of course, when he was asked about divorce. In which passage did he quote? He quoted Genesis 1:24, and he focused on the one flesh union of male and female. And he added to that then this other proviso that that relationship was to be what? Permanent. Let no man tear this relationship apart. And not everyone is married. Not everyone in this room or that is watching is married. The Bible makes allowance for that. It's not just allowance. It's, it's well within God's plan. He blesses it. Jesus allowed for some not to marry, to remain chaste in Matthew 19. Paul says, oh, that I would, even though he encourages people to marry so that they will not burn with passion. He says, I wish that you would have this gift, you see, the gift of singleness that Paul had. 1 Corinthians 7. If possible, be like myself. Don't marry so that you can devote yourself more fully and in a concentrated way to serve the Lord unhindered by all of the baggage that goes with marriage. There is a gift of singleness. And those of you who are single and God has blessed, I commend. But we're talking about marriage today and sex and procreation and their unity in the Bible. What is a biblical model of sexual behavior then? One man and one woman in a one flesh union for life. Let me say that again. One man and one woman in a one flesh union for life. There's to be fidelity in marriage. Malachi said, be faithful to the wife of your youth. Hebrews chapter 13, marriage is to be held in what? In honor and the marriage bed is not to be defiled. Fidelity in marriage is the biblical standard. No immorality, no sex outside marriage, no matter how popular it is, no matter how good it feels, no matter whether anybody or everybody is doing it, no matter what Timothy Leary said, no matter what Kinsey said, the Bible says not outside of marriage, premarital or postmarital, fornication, adultery, 
They are sins in the eyes of God. No immorality, sexual immorality. The works of the flesh, the first four of them that are listed in Galatians 5 of 17 works of the flesh. Adultery, immorality, uncleanness, and lasciviousness. The second of those covers a broad gamut of things. It's interpreted fornication, but it actually means any kind of sexual immorality, adultery, fornication, homosexuality, bestiality, or incest. All of these things are unclean works of the flesh. Jesus said these things, these pornaya, from which we get the word pornographic, these pornaya proceed from an evil heart. It is not good. One of the few conditions at the Council of Jerusalem that was given to Gentiles that were coming into the church to give evidence that they were compatible with the Jewish Christians was this. They were to reject sexual immorality. It didn't make them Christians, but it was one of the conditions of fellowship. The Bible says that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God, and in that it identifies those that are sexually immoral and adulterers. We are exhorted by the Scripture not to associate on a regular basis with those that practice sexual immorality. It doesn't mean that we don't have friends that are sexually immoral. It doesn't mean that we don't witness to them, but it means that we don't join together with them in their activities and associate with them. You see, sexual immorality, unbridled sex, is nothing less than neo-paganism. Paul says to Timothy, for this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles, that is, like, like the pagans who do not know God. You see, this is the worldly way, Paul tells the Colossians. It's the worldly way, like the pagan way, that you knew once upon a time as sons of disobedience, as children of disobedience, and you're to put that to death and put it behind you. So let's put all of this into perspective and draw some conclusions. Let's put sex and marriage into perspective for just a moment. Sex, I believe, is an essential part of our earthly identity. Every person is a sexual creature, male or female. And, of course, we talked about the transgender problem earlier. Some people are born with a, a kind of conflicted sexual identity. But sex is a part of our earthly identity. But our sex does not define us entirely, nor does marriage define us entirely. Sexuality does not determine our happiness or our fulfillment as much as a sexual revolution would suggest that if we can do it any way we want, we'll be happy. Sexuality does not determine our happiness or fulfillment. We are defined we are fulfilled by our relationship with Jesus Christ. Whether we're married or single, if you're married this morning, your primary identity was, is with Jesus Christ, even before you're mate. If you're single, your primary relationship is with Jesus Christ because, you see, we are wedded to Christ. We're part of the body of Christ, his church, and the church is the what? Not only the body of Christ, it is the bride of Christ. First Corinthians, Paul puts it this way. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. 
Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. You see, if we're Christ's followers, we belong completely to whom? If we are Christ's followers, we belong completely to whom? To Jesus Christ. Soul, spirit, and what? And body. He encourages us that are married to share our body with our spouse. And if we're not married, to remain celibate. Sexual union with anyone else outside marriage, this passage is telling us, prostitutes our relationship with God. It also betrays the church for whom Christ died. He died for the church, his bride. We are part of the bride of Christ. He died for us. That he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with a word. That he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, so that he might be, that she might be holy and blameless. We're part of the body of Christ. And when one practices sexual immorality, they prostitute Christ and they betray the church. Wow. There's an integral connection between our sexual identity and procreation and the love of God and our relationship with him and the church. So how shall we apply this? There's a cultural tsunami around us, friends. Sexual immorality all around us. You know, it's gotten to the point, it's amazing. I used to be scandalized by watching some of the sitcoms and the themes that are... Now I'm scandalized by some of the commercials I watch. Do you know what I'm talking about? Some of the commercials today are almost X-rated. The situation seems almost hopeless. You see, we are being overridden by a tsunami of immorality, but God has vindicated his word before, and he can do it again. The answer is not in the laws. The answer is not in Roe v. Wade or the overturning of Roe v. Wade. But many of the laws of this nation no longer support biblical norms. Today is like the day of the judges, and you know what I'm going to say, absolute relativity. In those days, there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what? Right as they saw in their own eyes. But you know what? Friends, the answer was not the king. That's not what Judges is saying. For when God sent a king, that became corrupted as well. The answer is not in the tables of the law. It's not in the stone upon which they're written. You see, the judges in the time of the judges, they already had the law of God. The answer has never been the law. The answer has never been the enforcement of the law. The answer is obedience to the author of the law. And to remedy the situation, what did God do? Yes, he gave them a king, but then he called his people to faithfulness and prayer. As Sanam prayed this morning, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray, and if they will turn from their evil ways and seek my face, I will hear from heaven, I will forgive their sin, and I will heal their land. He called his faithful people to pray, and then he sent prophets he sent prophets as examples to proclaim his word and to stay steady in the proclamation of his word and to hold society accountable, and he does the same today. The new covenant tells us this. Jesus told us to pray, 
Never be discouraged, friends. Do not be discouraged when you see the tsunami of sexual immorality all around you and you think that all hope is lost. Jesus said to his disciples, when you feel that way, when you feel discouraged, always pray and never lose heart. He calls us today to pray for this nation, to pray for your neighbor, to pray for your family, to pray diligently and never lose heart, and then to proclaim. He gives the church a prophetic voice, and he expects us to exercise it, speaking the truth in mature love. He told Timothy this, and he wasn't just talking to Timothy. He's talking to us. Proclaim the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Whether things seem to be going okay or whether they seem to be going to the dogs, reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance with their own desires and will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. We live in a nation today, friends, that is described by Paul. They've turned to the pagan myths. They've turned their way, their ears away from the truth. He gives us a responsibility. Wherever you go, whatever byway and highway you walk, whether it's in school, whether it's at work, whether it's at play, in season or out of season, you are to live a prophetic life that exemplifies biblical marriage, biblical values, and all we have described today. And to be prophetic, to hold forth the Word of God, even when things seem hopeless. If there is any hope for our nation, people will begin to listen and pray that this nation will repent. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Gamble Street Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. If you have questions, we would love to speak with you. Please call 817-926-1785 to speak with a minister. If you live in or will be traveling to the Fort Worth area, we would love to have you visit. Gamble Street Baptist Church has six church goals to reach the lost for Christ, to learn more about Christ, to touch the city through Christ, train leaders to serve Christ, to embrace the world with Christ, and to build strong families in Christ. Please join us for our next episode.